All right, folks, welcome to this episode of the Impact Real Estate Podcast brought to you by Jackson Lucas Executive Search. Today, I have my wonderful colleague, Victoria Whitaker. Hi, Victoria. How are you? I'm good. Hope everyone else is doing well, too. Victoria and I were out in the Hamptons last week. We were swimming in a pool, hanging out, and now we're back in Cali. Yeah. Chilling. Tough life. But Tough no, life for us. Beautiful. The recruiting life. And we got Julio, look, the producer, looking miserable on the camera there. But he's got gray hair. Great hair. Great hair. And so today, we spoke to an old friend of mine, Mr. Darnell Williams. Darnell Williams is the vice president of asset management at Eden Housing, based out of Hayward, California, up in NorCal, right in the Bay Area. And uh, I've known Darnell for... It's got to be, we met probably in 2013. Um, and so we've kind of, and he actually says he listens to the podcast. Yeah, it's exciting. What do you, what do you, what do you think of that, Victoria? It sounds like he's, 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 he's listening a, now. It could be, this could be you. I think he listens to the podcast more than you do. <laughs> As we'll find out during the interview, Victoria has no idea what this podcast it does. She's just there. I listen to, ask to a question. in all of my free time. <laughs> When I'm not recruiting. Well, please enjoy Darnell and uh, thanks for listening. All right, Darnell. Now we're officially recording. We're recording before, but now we're going to officially start the podcast. Haywood, Hayward, California. Yeah. Is that the home office of Eden House? It is. And uh, technically, we have three in the same general vicinity. Our, uh, our corporate headquarters is about, I don't know, a block away from the Bark Station in Hayward. Oh, nice. Uh, that's on the other side of City Hall. And uh, we have two other um, satellite offices just for expansion. We have about 150 people in corporate staff, so... We didn't have one space for all of us to fit, so we have three. <laughs> nice. And you're the you obviously got the best space. I, I think you. I have a, a cool space. I'm not, I'm not gonna lie. You know, the AC works very well. You know, <laughs> we've been dealing with those hundred degree um, uh, temperatures a few times uh, last week and this week, and yeah, our AC. Yeah, well, is Victoria's smart. out in the desert in SoCal, so. Oh, what part? I'm in San Bernardino, so not quite okay. the desert, but you know, do you know the Inland Empire? I'm in the Inland Empire. Gotcha. Yeah. Nice and warm. She's the queen well, of the Inland Empire. It's probably similar weather because you're right on the other side of like, yeah, you're, it's probably yeah. similar. It's like 105 today. Yeah. yeah. It's actually warmer in, in my, my um, where I'm at, at home, San Ramon. San Ramon. Yeah. And you're the uh, VP of Asset Management there? Is, um, that's right. Tell everyone what the VP of Asset Management does. Oh, man, that's an interesting question. <laughs> sort of wear a lot of hats, I guess. Uh, well, so 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 basically, I was brought on to Eden uh, about four years ago. I came here in 2018 to help continue to uh, build out our asset management platform. Mm -hmm. um, we have what was, was sort of in our charge is we have traditional portfolio asset management. So we have asset managers, obviously, that have a, a portfolio of assets that they oversee. From mm -hmm. a financial ownership standpoint, we also have a reporting function that basically controls or centralizes uh, various external reporting requirements for all of our various stakeholders. And then uh, 
lastly, we have um, building performance and sustainability function, where that function is basically uh, charged with um, rolling out uh, green initiatives, uh, whether that's solar PV insulation, solar thermal, uh, LED lighting upgrades, things of that nature. We go out for various um, state level financing tools and mechanisms to make that happen. And so you're a nonprofit, right? Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We, so I guess we, you can tell everyone about Eden too. So, so yeah, Eden, Eden, I think we're what, in year 54. Uh, we, we have uh, just over 10,000 units, um, over 154 properties. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we are only in California right now. Uh, that, that is, we, we feel that we strongly feel that California has enough um, to deal with that right. we are um, financially uh, positioned to help um, help solve the financial, the, I'm sorry, the housing crisis in California. Yeah. So uh, we are um, primarily, uh, as far as our footprint, we're primarily in the, uh, Northern California. We have a lot of properties in Hayward. Um, okay. I'm pretty sure Hayward, we have the most properties of, as far as one city. Um, a lot of properties in Santa Clara County. Mm-hmm. And we also go um, as south as, um, as uh, San Diego, where okay. we have about 700 units in Southern California. And as north as Sacramento, um, we are strategically positioning ourselves to double in size over the next 10 years. Um, uh, we, we will, we've opened up a satellite office in both Sacramento area and San Diego area to try to expand our footprint into different uh, geographies. Mm. Um, we, we've grown um, both in-house and um, uh, from a, a strategic standpoint, we've acquired uh, a large portfolios at times. So we've done our own um, uh, in-house uh, construction, new construction and rehabs to sustain our existing portfolio. But we've also taken on small nonprofits within strategic merge. Oh, you kind of over- uh, overtake, merge with other nonprofit housing? Yeah, so. yeah. So Citizens Housing, um, uh, South County Housing, which is about 40 properties at once, and, um, and uh, was it Vacaville Community Housing, which we took on a, a close to 800 units there. So, gotcha. uh, so yeah, it's... It's worked out pretty well for us. Um, we enjoy the work that we do. Do you enjoy the work that you do? I do. I do. I, I you know, I'm, I'm often asked, you know, what what keeps what wakes me up when I when I wake up, you know, what keeps me going. And I mean, outside of the personal thing, I got a wife and kid that I have to take care of. But um, uh, I, I do generally enjoy the work. You know, I, I'm mm. I'm a product of affordable housing. You know, I grew up in Southside Chicago, and you know, and uh, a number of the failed um, public housing uh, communities, Robert Taylor Homes, Stateway Gardens, um, IDB Wells. And, you know, there's th- definitely a need for what we mm. do. Um, and, and when I say failed, you know, that, that pro- the programs of, of the past just didn't work. And I'm, I'm happy to be a part of an organization that, you know, we, we also provide resident services. We also what were the, what's the difference just what, for the past and now? The major we, we, difference is... Yeah. Um, I believe it was HUD. I mean, I was so young, I don't know exactly how the financing worked. But basically, Robert, I'll take Robert Taylor Homes, for instance. Big housing project, Southside Chicago. Um, it was, I believe it was, it was either 17, 14-story buildings or 14, 17-story buildings. I can't remember which one. Yeah. But basically, you build these very, very high-density uh, buildings, and you call them the projects, right? Well, that's at least what we call them in the hood. And you don't provide any services. I mean, yes, you do provide uh, subsidized housing. Folks only pay 30% of their income toward their rent. But um, I don't think that there was a such thing as a community manager or a maintenance tech. 
You know, like I've yeah. never seen anyone at the property. There definitely wasn't resident services. Mm. So uh, what, what, what comes from that, um, you can read up on this stuff. You know, Robert Taylor Holmes was known for the gangs taking over the, the, um, the top level and basically creating like a condo and having snipers up there because mm. it was um, gang wars across the buildings. Like mm. that stuff doesn't happen in what we provide at Eaton Housing, right? And, and our, our colleagues um, across the, the nation. Um, I, I think public housing was just um, meeting an immediate need at the time. Um, and it goes back generations. Mm. But um, there's a reason why in Chicago in particular, they tore it all down, you know, because it, it, it just was a failed project. So. Well, Victoria built out uh, services pla- a service platform for a developer once. Um, like, what? how do you, so you can maybe guys can talk about that. How do you, like, what do you, what services does Eden provide? Yeah, so so it's it's sort of it's a robust service platform. So we we do family services, senior senior uh, senior services, and also after school for our kids. So family services are more on the financial literacy side of things. Uh, senior services where um, a lot of our uh, resident services coordinators connect with our senior uh, citizens and uh, seniors at our communities and basically interact with them and basically they're a shoulder for them to to communicate with. Right. Then we also have after school programs for families that are still at school, are still at work, and then their kids don't have anywhere to go. So um, those are the, the three primary um, avenues of services that we provide. And we are, we contract uh, permit supportive housing services. So we don't have sort of the, in, in, the in-house um, infrastructure to deal with permanent supportive housing, basically um, folks that were chronically uh, homeless previously and now are in our units. Uh, so we, we contract with various service providers to uh, provide those services. And, and also, uh, oftentimes, um, counties will have case management services that's assigned to our properties as well to deal with that. Is that what you guys did, Victoria, at your shop? Um, well, I worked at a for-profit affordable housing um, organization, so it was a little different. So it, it didn't quite exist yet. But I, interestingly enough, I worked at a school called the Primary School, which uh, was started by Priscilla Chan in East Palo Alto. And, I helped launch a new school in Hayward. Um, and so we, um, and I think they're still doing this right now, are putting that that school on um, affordable housing, like new affordable housing up against the mountain. I can't remember what the name of the street is. Um, so I did do a little bit of thinking there and, and talk to Eden actually, some people at Eden to hear a little bit about what they're doing in Hayward. Um, at the for-profit, it was a little bit more around like finding the, those third-party contractors or other organizations like the YMCA or, you know, um, other organizations that are providing services and connecting them to the property managers and, and people who are doing those services on the ground. So really trying to create a little bit more of a ecosystem, but, you know, things were very local. So, and, and that's something that was a question that I was going to ask you is like, how do you guys think about partnerships? Because it sounds like you have a lot of in-house knowledge. Are you guys also like partnering with others in the community? And like, what does that kind of look like to build those relationships? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we, we have we have a centralized function of um, I believe the position is community partnerships manager, where um, effectively we reach out to various um uh, outside third parties to connect them to our properties. And where, 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 where it's most beneficial I've found is at properties that can't, um, support a robust services platform from our in-house services department, um, where we have this community partnership manager reach out to other, um, uh, service providers to have direct uh, contact with the residents. 
So, so to the ecosystem uh, comment that you made, that, that resonates with us as well, because not every property can afford to pay for some robust um, uh, um, uh, services um, um, product, right? Mm -hmm. so, so we had to be pretty strategic about at least getting some level of services to all of our residents across our portfolio. When you buy a property, like say, I mean, I'm sure you know, they're out acquiring you know, these 40 units or whatever, or building a property. Like, is that part of your job as an asset manager to be like, think about, okay, like we're gonna, how we, you know, the financial health of this property, right? But also yeah. the, ser the services, is that kind of fall? I know you're not responsible for the services, but is that part of yeah. the asset management? It's not, not, not the services, but it, but helping understand whether or not a building is going to be solvent or not is a part of um, um, my, my department. So, you know, I always joke around with developers, you know, both internally, and externally, tell them that, you know, you guys are the parents that went out and had one night stand and then uh, had a baby and I'm the grandparent that had to take care of that baby. <laughs> so, <laughs> so basically, basically what that means is, you know, we, we are fortunate enough to have a very collaborative development team that gets us involved early on. And, you know, we're reviewing performance. We're, we're also reviewing uh, regulatory agreements and, and basically commitments that are uh, a property that we're, we're aiming to sign up for a property to make mm -hmm. sure it all can coexist. And that just coexists, you know, year one, year two. Like we're a long-term hold uh, organization. We don't sell our property. So mm -hmm. we, we, we need to understand what is it going to look like in year 20, year 30, year 40. So, so part of that is sort of the power of having a strong asset management department to sort of help review those types of things. And so what, I guess, what are, what is, what are you guys looking for when you buy a property? Uh, well, in this day and, in this day and age, we're looking at whether or not we can afford it, quite frankly. Um, cap rates are at all time low and interest rates are now at this juncture at all time, high. maybe not all time, but they just crept up. So. Now, um, in most cases, our acquisitions have been uh, short-term hold um, bridge to syndication. What I mean, bridge to syndication. So we'll come in and buy. We may have a strategic partner that we come in and provide, you know, uh, somewhere between sixty to seventy percent of the equity. Well, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. sixty to seventy percent LTV from a from a lender, and then we'll come in and provide the rest as equity, perhaps by ourselves or with a, um, a strategic partner. And in, in most of those cases, we are looking at holding for around five to 10 years, and then that's the bridge to syndication. So basically, our acquisition uh, strategy is effectively make sure that we can hold for that time with, and that property can be self-sufficient, right? Now, as far as characteristics on, um, from a physical standpoint, we obviously don't want to buy something where a roof is flying off or, you know, uh, uh, there's a massive water intrusion issues and things of that nature. So we have a, a fairly robust due diligence uh, process where we have various consultants go out and make sure that, you know, there isn't anything hidden that we, we don't know about. From a mission standpoint, we have to um, make sure that we understand what we're getting ourselves into and um, making sure that we're, we're up for the charge and um, are able to subsidize properties if necessary to get us from that and through that bridge to syndication um, process. And then once they acquire it and then it's, mm -hmm your job to help onboard it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So and then, what, if, yeah, take us through that process. So we have to make the decision on all of our acquisitions or whether or not we're going to manage or not. That wasn't a thing of the past. Uh, in the past, we are a large um, owner operator. So largely speaking, we operate all of our properties. 
but we do have a few um, um, call it strategic geographical challenges that we've decided to uh, hire third-party management companies to uh, mm -hmm. manage our properties is not that many but what i what i what i would not be surprised is if we determine like for instance we're expanding our footprint to sacramento further into sacramento and san diego uh, perhaps if we are faced with acquiring a 60 unit property in one of those locations and we can't share staff and the property can't afford full-time staff we may um, look to a management company to help us with that yeah but if we as we expand our footprint we would definitely uh, aim to bring that in-house and then you oversee that management company yeah, that's right and then like so if you buy a property and it's not i don't know it's not doing what you want it to do and you're like hey this is not a good way to make money on this one uh, we're not, you know, we need to get this, we need to fix this one or get it up to speed. Or like, does it fall to you to like, all right, we got to put the business plan in place. And then it like, could, you um, that's, I would say that yes, yes. And, um, we try not to do that. We try not to acquire properties that we don't have a strategy, um, identified prior to it. Um, but, but, but in a lot of cases also, um, things happen that you just can't anticipate that property. I mean, property management is a beast. You know, there, there could be things you could you could have done as much evaluations and have as many consultants as you want to come out there. And then, you know, two, three months later, call it a year later, something just happens that you just didn't anticipate. So um, from an asset management standpoint, we want to make sure that there is uh, sufficient replacement reserves to, to handle those uh, types of things. Um, we we through an annual budget process, obviously, we work to um, uh revisit our long-term capital plans to make sure that we set enough setting aside enough money in the reserves we're, we're planning for large ticket items and also some of the wish wish list items or things that may not need to be done now but preventatively it makes sense to be done um and and, and this also ties back to uh biz, biz, i'm sorry uh, building performance and sustainability function on my team where uh, we have a team of professionals that's looking at how our buildings are operating right and from, from the standpoint of whether or not there are incentives uh, available for us to improve how a building is operating, we, we tend to go after those to, to basically extend the useful life of, of a building. Gotcha. Um, now that you're like affordable housing has become like a hotter asset class. Are you finding that you're, are you competing against a lot of more for-profit money institutional yeah. capital are you like partnering with them more or like are they squeezing the nonprofits out um you mean on the acquisition side yeah or any yeah. other side I'd, I'd say probably more on the acquisition side because there are shops out there that aren't necessarily you know in it for the long-term restrictions yeah. right so that they'll come in uh, let's say they have five to 10 years left uh, in affordability and they'll hold that for five to 10 years and then convert it to market rate housing. Mm -hmm. um, that is perhaps part of the, the, the issue in California as to why it's so um, expensive to buy here. Um, I'm not an economist. I, I don't track that closely, but like logically it makes sense that if market rates will come in, uh, market rate syndicators will come in and, and pay top dollar for an asset that they don't necessarily intend to hold uh, affordable housing, they, they'll take more of a loss up front because they, they're looking at the back end. Right. So, you know, yeah, perhaps there, there's something there. I, I think there, there's accuracy there, accurate and legitimate um, uh, concern there. How did you, 
I mean, tell me, yeah. So you were in affordable. You grew up in affordable housing. You said, yeah. um, like, take yeah. Tell me your story, like how you got to where yeah. you are today. Like, so what, did you have an interest in real estate or any? I didn't. Anything? I didn't actually. <laughs> I didn't. So so grew up in Chicago. Um, where in Chicago did you grow up? I lived there. South side of Chicago. So I'm not the type to say I grew up in Chicago and then I'm from Schaumburg. Like I'm not that. I'm, I'm grew up <laughs> in the city. Yeah, <laughs> I worked in Roseland, so that's why. But that's you worked where? In Roseland. No way. Is that I where you went high school? Oh my goodness. Yeah, in, yeah, yeah. No way. So I'm from I'm from that area. So yeah. um, early on in my in my childhood, we lived in um, the, like I said, the public housing, um, various public housing complex. We we moved around a lot actually. Um, I, I think by the time I was six or seven, we probably moved around two or three times a year. So, so that was, you know, that was that. And then from, it was more stable as I grew up and we got into uh, high school and I went to Corliss High School, graduated from Corliss, played football, went to school in Missouri. Um, it was in Missouri that I think, you know, to Chris, to your question, I think that's when I, I had this aha moment where I then realized that the South Side of Chicago was not the only thing that was available to life or to, in society. I mean, Prior to going to college, I never left Chicago, or maybe once I may have left Chicago. To, I think I went to Washington D.C. once, um, but all I knew was the South Side of Chicago. And interestingly enough, I didn't even know about the North Side of Chicago. Like, really, <laughs> I didn't go over there until I graduated from college. It's a whole other world. <laughs> yeah, it's a whole other world, right? So, so needless to say, when I was in, in school in Missouri, I was um, I was. With with the, a woman, you know, my girlfriend and college. You're with a woman. Hello, yeah. not that kind <laughs> of podcast, Arnell. My girlfriend in college. <laughs> was, uh, her family was in California, and you know, uh, we wanted to try to make it work toward the end of our college career. And California was more of the the option than going back to Chicago. I knew I was never going back to Chicago, but I didn't know exactly where I was going to go. And um, I was fortunate enough to be with her at the time, and it made sense for us to try California. Um, when I first moved here, I moved to Sacramento. I worked for VSP, which is uh, the business service plan, a big insurance company. Um, I was in accounting there for about three years or so. That sounds fun. And, insurance yeah, accounting. Know, insurance I, accounting. It's accounting, but you know, we need our accountants now. We need we need our accountants, accounts beings that keep us straight. But but um but my um my girlfriend at the time had um had received a, a an offer a promotion offer to come to the Bay Area. And it was at that time that I just said, all right, we're still trying to make it work. Uh, let me uh, apply for a job, right? And how kid you not, I applied on Craigslist for this job. <laughs> A.F. Um, Evans was uh, Art, yeah. Art, Art Evans. Um, so he had, he had a development. Are they, are they still around? They're not. So, yeah. well, quasi. So, so he, uh, around 2000, they basically got hit with 2008 bubble, um, went through bankruptcy. And at, at that time, the management arm, which is EPMI, Evans Property Management Inc., was basically the bread and butter at that time. And I went to work for that, that organization. And um, that's when I got my start into real estate. And, and through that, it, it sort of became this sort of organic experience where I was like, even though I didn't set out for this, it sort of fit and made sense for me because I was then giving back to the product that, that raised me. Mm. So, so yeah, that, that's that's sort of where it started. And then from there, I stayed there for a little over three years, then went to mid penthousing for close to four years. Then it was at that time, Chris, I met you mm. and I left to go work for the Baskin Group. Well, technically, it was a subsidiary of the Baskin Group. Yeah, Baskin. Yeah. yeah. In, in Jer Jeremy, right? 
So Jer Jerry Fink, uh, Jerry, yeah, Jerry, Jerry. And, um, uh, Dave Kim, and I can't remember their other um, par partner, but um, but they have they have strategic operating companies all throughout um, California and also just the nation. I worked for uh, an operating company that was in uh, San Francisco. Did that that value add market rate thing for about a year, and yeah. then you know something pulled me back to affordable housing, and I came to Eden. I've been here for four years. That's awesome. So yeah, you like it. Um... And why did you decide to, to go nonprofit versus like a for-profit? Um, I don't know if it was necessarily anything that pulled me in the nonprofit realm or not. Uh, Cause I've done, so I, I, so EPMI or AF Evans, his company was for-profit, but affordable. Um, but they also, uh, as part of the model, they were a third party uh, management company, but also they had their own properties that they managed. Right. So I had exposures to both ends of the spectrum there. Midpen, similar to um, to Eden, is an owner operator where we own and operate our own properties. Bassman Group was owner value add shop that the fee manage um, uh, their properties. Right. So I had all of the spectrums and two of the organizations were nonprofits, two were for profits. So I, I, it, it just made sense. But I, I wouldn't say there was necessarily anything that was that was pulling me to nonprofit uh, other than the fact that. I do believe that fundamentally there's a different um, appreciation. Not, not necessarily appreciation. I don't want to say for profits don't appreciate, but there's a different um, fundamental um, um, structure at nonprofits that that for profits just don't have. You know, that um, their bottom line approach, obviously, from our perspective, we we're a triple bottom line. We have a triple bottom line approach that is, you know. Uh, we want to make sure that a building and that the asset is is solvent, but we also have a resident uh, services uh, element. But yeah. you know, from a triple bottom line perspective, we also have a, a fiscal responsibility to our corporate corporation, right? So, so we basically want to look at all ends of the spectrum to make sure that we're one providing the the, the proper um, 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 asset class, and um, we well being a part of the proper asset class, but but also providing the resources to our residents. And also what we want to make sure that we're around forever. Um, you know, we got to make sure that our business decisions are in line with a, a particular strategy that will allow us to continue to achieve our goals. And what's the biggest difference as an asset manager between the different uh, companies you've been with or different ways of, of investing? Well, I'll tell you, the, the, the clear difference is in a market rate world, um, market rate for profit world. Um, well, I guess you don't have nonprofit market rate, but but that world is you make a decision and you run with it, right? And in the nonprofit and or for profit affordable world, there are a lot of stakeholders involved, and there are a lot of considerations that you must, uh, as an asset manager, you must consider various and several different circumstances before making the decision, and that's fine. It, it, you know, critical thinking skills is critical, mm -hmm. <laughs> but that, that is a defining difference um, uh, that I've at least identified with where when I was uh, in the market world, for the most part, it was me or one other person making the decision. And mm -hmm. now, you know, we will have a meeting because we had a meeting to make a decision. You know what I mean? So right. it, it's just different. Um, but, but at the same time, I do think that in the nonprofit world, we tend to be... Um, we tend to take less risk 
and, and because we are, we will vet an idea through and through before we move forward. And that that's a little different from, than the marketing world, where you know they're they're short short term holders in in a lot of cases where if they make a mistake, they live with it and move on. Where for us, we're around for 50 years, like I said. So we want to make sure that every every decision is very intentional and is to the benefit of that 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 property to our organization and to the residents and our staff. Do you, I mean, is there any particular, particular challenges of doing business or doing your type of business in California that you like when you yeah. talk to, I saw you actually, I saw you at AHF in Chicago. Didn't say hi to you. Cause I thought you that's messed up. Chris would beat me up. No, I thought I was, I thought like, you'd be like, you know what? I don't remember this guy. Get this away. Yeah, I remember you do. Like, <laughs> I, can't believe you saw I saw you up. walking down the stairs and I was like, I know that guy. Chris is so popular at conferences. He was probably swamped too. You could have seen yeah. me. Wasn't I that big of a conference. You. I didn't right, see you. I would have right. talked to you for sure. Yes, I, I remember right. you. But actually we did talk. You don't remember? No, we did not talk. I know I'm we didn't talk. Pretty sure we didn't. No, I, I was know. actually I, I was there and uh, they invited me to a panel. So. I know you're on a panel. I'm like he doesn't want to deal with peons, like non-panel, <laughs> NPPs, non-panel people. <laughs> um, came up with that today. <laughs> so I just came up right now, and then um, I'm sure you talk to folks in other areas of the country. Like, is there a particular yeah. challenge? I mean, doing business in California seems just everyone I talk to is, especially in the Bay Area, is like impossible. Yeah. Do you get like? Um, is it, do you chase any? Do you face any specific challenges that other states don't have to deal with? Well, I mean, I don't want to get in trouble here. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I will say that no one's listening, anyways, Darnell. It's okay. No, no, with all seriousness, I, I would say that you know California. I, I don't know that we're as strategic as we could be as from a state level perspective and how we finance and how we move deals forward. Um, we, we have to apply to five or six agencies just to finance a deal, right? And that, that doesn't include the tax credit equity. So, so we have what, SIDLAC, TCAC, College of Faith perhaps, and HCD, right? And then I wonder if it make, makes sense to bring those entities together to, to effectively, there's one application for to finance a, a new construction deal and, and all of those parties, you know, obviously I'm saying bring them together, but basically mm -hmm. all of those players make considerations and have a scoring system that, that applies to every project where they can, one, um, uh, approve or deny the bond allocation, also uh, approve the tax credit um, equity allocation. And also if it's ACD financing uh, from a soft debt perspective, they approve that all in, at once versus the various hurdles that we have to jump through just to get a deal uh, closed. I mean, our, our biggest challenge in my, from my standpoint is two things. One, it takes us anywhere from two years in a dream state to build something new. In some cases, I mean, we had a, a project that we, we um, leased up a few years ago that took 10 years from concept to uh, lease up, right? Mm. So, and, and, and we got it. I personally think we have to stop do, uh, building these 40, 50 unit properties. I think that in order for us to really hit the housing crisis, that we need to figure out how to densify. And that, that's, that's, that's really a call to action on from our local partners where we have to be more strategic about allowing for higher density. Now, I'm not talking about going back to the, the public housing complexes in South South Chicago, the 17 stories, right? 
Mm-hmm. But three stories, come on now. Like, like, like that, that's, I think we can do better, you know, I, I, but at the same time, everyone loves to be in California. And I, I personally love, I love California, California myself. but it's tough to live here. Yeah. <laughs> it's tough to live here, but I love it. Right. I just think we can do better, be more strategic about how we align um, uh, our initiatives and our goals as a state. Yeah, I mean, I was reading an article. I'm actually just looking at an article right now. It's about, uh, it's on moneygeek.com. I think it came out today. It said the, uh, the best cities for job growth, and number one's Orlando, but number two is San Diego. Number three is San Francisco. And then number four is Riverside. And number five is San Jose. But then it's so, uh, if you want a job, it's a good place to be. But then it's the, the cities with the worst housing to income ratio in san francisco is number one yeah and then oxnard's number two for some reason i don't know why oxnard and san diego's really? number san diego's number five there's no houses in oxnard I imagine. Maybe that's why. Never that. there's like <laughs> a lot of farming community and there's like i think there's expensive really, condos on the, on the really beach big, too. yeah really big yeah i know they have a big um manufacturing plant like Uber mm-hmm. manufacturing plant. that's where the dallas cowboys have their training camp no way yeah oxnard they're crazy that. i'll google that i don't believe that isn't that crazy I don't believe you, Chris. That's okay. <laughs> Want me to call Jerry Jones right now? Please get him on. It's so odd. Yeah, I've I've been there. My my best friend's father for some reason had a uh, um a condo there for like some work he was doing there for one point. We went there, yeah. stayed the night. Just Google, Google says it's true. The River Ridge Hills. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> um. Awesome, man. And so I know you said that it's uh, it's it's hot out there, but are you ready for to get even hotter on the hot seat? <laughs> sure. The Hot Seat is sponsored by KK Reset. KK Reset is an HR management and outsourcing consulting firm that specializes in helping organizations to reset their culture, structure, and path. They do this through services which include comprehensive consultation to identify gaps and opportunities for corporate training programs, HR services, and career mapping services. They've collaborated with nonprofits, startups, and academic organizations to protect them from liabilities, reduce turnover, and preserve their brands. They've also collaborated with a number of my clients on the real estate front who are not large enough to have their own in-house HR program. So they outsource it to KK Reset. KK Reset comes in, maybe sits on site a couple days a week and provides you know everything you need from an HR perspective for your, for your firm. So it's a great uh, resource for those shops who just maybe it doesn't make sense for them to have in-house HR function. Um, so please check them out at kkreset.com. K-K-R-E-S-E-T.com. Getting hot in here. Any good, uh, this is not a hot seat question, but any good uh, conferences coming up? Um, let's see. We're in June. So I just got back from the Sham Conference, um, which was fortunately in San Diego this year. Mm-hmm. Um, it's usually either East or Midwest. That is an organization that is specifically for uh, multifamily housing asset managers. Oh, cool. um, that's one that I find uh, very useful, uh, particularly for newer asset managers and seasoned asset managers. So that was just in San Diego. I am not lined up to go to another conference until, let's see, I think October, maybe November. I can't remember when NPH is coming around. 
So yeah, I'll, I'll likely attend that one. And then one question, another question, like, do you, did you have, I mean, you got into real estate kind of accidentally. I mean, did you study accounting before you had the accounting? No, didn't. So fun fact, I went to school. Uh, well, first of all, it took me a, a minute to decide on going to college or not, to be honest with you. And then I went, when I went to school, I, um, I went for criminal justice, right? Because I, I told myself that, you know, growing up in South South Chicago, it took me a while to get here, but I, I ended up um, resonating and connecting with the notion that I want to bust the guys that's putting this stuff in our communities, right? right. Drugs, right? So I wanted to be DEA. So I, I went to school, studied criminal justice, and um, uh, I went in heavy the first two years. And I actually started the summer before the fall year. Um, they let me do that because I was a football player, I think. But anyway, um, uh, about around my sophomore year, I was almost done with my, my major. So I started taking business classes, right? And what, what, what happened for me was that the more I learned about criminal justice, the more I started thinking in my head, like, am I ever going to want to have a family? And I, I was struggling with that decision. I was just like, things I'm learning, I'm like, I'm chasing the cartels. Mm -hmm. What is that? What, what position does that put my family in? You know, and that was the decision I made that, all right, I don't want to do that anymore. So mm -hmm. as I was sort of growing and evolving and, and becoming an adult, I was just like, you know what, I'm going to do something in business. And I didn't know what. So I was just taking general business courses and I graduate and then I just had to figure it out from there. You know, it, it, it was a challenge, but you know, I got I got through it and now I'm pretty good. Gotcha. And then did you have a mentor? Was that super helpful for you? Did you have anyone that like say, hey, Darnell, I like you. Like, let me show you how you do this and. I didn't have a direct mentor, but I have had several people in my life that have been instrumental in one, well, first from a uh, professional standpoint and just my uh, followed me over my career and, and helped guide me and advise me in different situations. But even on a personal level, um, uh, the woman who, who ran EPMI, uh, Deborah Sobeck, is my kids call her Grandma Deb. And, and oh, nice. For that. So oh, she's uh, old. She she's, she's oh no. Yeah. Okay. She's old enough to be my mom. Yeah, she is old enough to be my mom. And um and we just developed a personal relationship over the years that has been one of the most uh, impactful relationships uh, in my life. That's awesome, man. I love that. Um, so those are the non-official hot seat questions. But now Victoria can ask you the first official hot seat question. Yes. Is there like a book? a current book or a podcast that you might recommend people to do <laughs> or news article. I like to expand it because I don't have an answer to this, but, uh, yeah, maybe I do. do. I do. As, as far as what? That you <laughs> might recommend. Helpful. Yeah. That you think could be, I mean, remember this is going out to people and they're like, man, I want to be like Darnell and what does Darnell do? So you, you know, yeah. it could be so I'll be completely honest with you guys. So I am not good at reading books. That doesn't mean I can't read. I can read. But it is like Good. a gateway to passing out and falling asleep. Like I'm yeah. I read before I go to bed. Yeah, yeah. And and for me, I just won't I won't retain any of that information. So I, I am more of a audiobook, a podcast guy. Um, I would say over the past few years, what has been most important for me is anything leadership um, advancement, anything from a um, uh, whether like Paul Lencioni, for instance, has this, this amazing book. Um, I did the audio book, <laughs> but he has a major book, uh, Five Dysfunctions of a Team, which I would recommend oh. anyone that, that is entering leadership or is already in leadership and looking for that next step. 
um, podcast. I actually listen to this podcast. <laughs> oh, thanks, Darnell. I do. I do. I, uh, I appreciate I it. To, uh, William and Mary College has a leadership and business podcast that I listen to. Um, Matt Seplin, I believe his name is, with uh, Terror Search Partners. Yeah, we uh, never we don't we don't know that guy. Oh, yeah. You can't promote <laughs> other recruiters' podcasts on here. <laughs> uh, another, one, another one would be um, uh, Revolution is a is a nice podcast that I listen to, and that's that's from a business standpoint. But I also no, I like that. That's good. NPR and other stuff like that. That's oh, great. No Regretic. No Regretic has a really oh, yeah. tax credit. Did you listen Tuesday. to his podcast on here? I, I listen to his podcast um, almost every Tuesday. Well, He's not, he did he did this podcast too. Is that right? Maybe oh, a year ago. I'll yeah. Check that out. Yeah, he was. He's a great. He's like my. He's. He just captured the. He's like my hero. He's like the. Yeah. He's like a marketing genius. Um, and he's just really smart and nice guy too. I, I, there's a book called the captain class. You, you mentioned that your leader, one of the one leadership book sounded like it was like sort of sports related. There's one that I read called the captain class about no, qualities that, uh, captains of certain sports teams have, yep. um, which is pretty cool. I read that one. Um, question number two, do you have any advice for anyone looking to start out in your field? Oh man, that's a tough one. You know, you, you can't go to a four year college to, to, to get institutional knowledge into what we do. Um, right. I would say that there's a, I gotta say this, there, there's a, there's transferable skills from different industries, like accounting, for instance. I would recommend taking some accounting courses if you can, uh, if mm. you're looking to get into asset management. Um, from a financial literacy standpoint, it would make your job a lot easier if you knew how to read financials. Mm. Um, Darnell knows how to read, right? You know how to read. You said that already. I, I know how to read. I know how to read financials <laughs> and um, journals. And you books. don't listen to audio financials. I wish audio I could. book financials. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. Also, being fairly savvy in Microsoft Excel again is not something that that I would say is required, but it'll make your job so much easier, and it also allow you to stand out. I, I think being able to create financial models and things of that nature would be beneficial for most organizations because there's not that many people out there that are very savvy in excel um let's see interpersonal skills is critical mm. uh, asset managers we're we're the hub of all things information about an asset we're the owner's rep so we have to be able to talk to maintenance staff up to the boardroom right I'll, i joke around and say you know you got to be able to hold a conversation at the barbershop or the boardroom mm. and and there's there's interpersonal skills that that is, is critical to making sure that can happen. You know, you have to be able to relate to people. Um, and other than that, I'd say <sighs> working on being able to receive information and disseminate that information across several circumstances. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is apply concepts that you, that you receive from one situation and understanding how you, how you can apply that across different situations, um, because every day is different in asset management. You're always going to come across something else that you have to solve for. So problem solving skills is ultimately what I'm saying. You you have to uh, have fairly uh, strong problem solving skills. Nice. Awesome. Okay, next one. What is your most memorable deal or maybe like asset that you've managed? For me personally, man, that's a hard one. Man, we're doing so much good work. 
<laughs> um, <laughs> How about your worst one? You said memorable. I'm not going to go there. <laughs> I'll, find, I'll find my best one. Um, for me personally, it was back when I was a portfolio asset manager where I had um, procured a, a project to install um, submeters uh, for a property that had master meters for electricity. Um, we, it was a 324 unit property and the owner was paying electricity for all the residents. And it just, it was actually when I was at AF Evans and it, it was just not sustainable long term. So, um, contracted with conservatives to come in and install, um, um, sub meters for that property. And for whatever reason that project, it was a massive project. And for whatever reason, I remember that to this day. And it, it happened like, I don't know, 12 years ago or something like that. So, mm. I don't know. But but I, we do so much good work at Eden. I can pick any property, any recent or distant deal to say it was my best. Almost, It's almost like the cliche, my last deal was my best deal. Um, we do a lot of great work here. Man, you are. You should be a politician. <laughs> Shoot, I, just lost I don't have a temperament for politics. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a tough one. Um, you got the look, though. So. You could be a politician for sure. I appreciate it. Um, what do you look for in hiring people? You're a senior guy now. That's been an evolution. I'm going to be 100% honest with you. I started out as a, as a leader believing that you must find um, someone that has the direct um, experience for whatever position you're, you're hiring for. Mm. I have learned um, maybe the hard way that is less critical to have um, the daily direct experience to do something and is more important that you hire for the skill set that's needed mm. like it's interpersonal skills for instance if it's um, transferable skills from an accounting department to the asset manager if it's a property supervisor that's uh, really good with uh, dealing with residents or or the stakeholders, for instance, maybe there's a way to train them on the, the, the daily task, but you're you're hiring for a particular skill set, the interpersonal skills that that can benefit your team. And I also say, I have um, been pretty strategic in whenever I can control this, hiring folks with different diverse backgrounds and bringing them to on a team together to yeah. be able to effectively share information across each one another and, and, and basically help each other um, advance in their career through because they've been now being exposed to different perspectives. Do you so, guys have a diversity sort of effort to try to do that when you hire folks? We do. We do. So we recently, uh, it's been about a year or two years now, we hired a, um, a senior director of um, DEI that we're looking, you know, top down, basically all of our policies, um, um, trying to understand that uh, we're going to have uh, requirements for our contractors and our vendors, um, with, uh, understanding the DEI focuses from our lender partners, our limited partners, and, and basically, and I'm not saying that this, this uh, professional is in charge of all of that, but, mm. but basically having a person that can um, look at our practices and have a consistent approach to DEI is effectively what this position is for. And, and I think it's, it's something that, you know, unfortunately it took the death of, of the murder of George Floyd to get a lot of organizations to start thinking about this stuff, but it's something that was, it, it was, it's like Sam Cook said, you know, it is, is, I'm not going to go there, but basically <laughs> this, this, should have, this should have happened a long time ago. Yeah. You know, it's just sad that it took someone 
being murdered on TV to, to get organizations to do this. And um, I'm just glad to be working for Eden, where we've been intentional about um, uh, sort of people first mentality since our inception. So, I mean, this is not a hot seat question, but like you're a black man working in real estate. How yeah. have you seen it gotten, hopefully gotten better or was it harder? I mean, did you, are you still mostly when you walk into a room, like there's not, you know, it's mostly yeah. white dudes and. Like, how this do you, are there communities, are there like, uh, anything within the diverse quote unquote, whatever, I don't know what, but maybe Victoria can phrase it better that, uh, is there to help people? Like what support? Yeah. Are you part of organizations or, you know, different things yeah. that are supporting, you know, people of color within the real estate industry right now? Yeah. So, so I mean, on the first, on the first question, um, I always say that it's gotten better. Um, I've noticed this at conferences that I attend, uh, mm -hmm. different social engagements that I attend. Um, I would say that maybe the market rate world could do a lot better. The affordable mm -hmm. world seems to have been there for some time and, and, and improving and is improving. Um, I don't know if that's the same in the market rate world. There are a lot of, um, like you said, white men in those rooms that for some that, that, that creates a understandably that, that creates this sense of un, like uncomfort or discomfort in being part of those rooms. I personally don't care. Uh, I really think that I can adapt to any situation or at least I'm going to aim to adapt to any situation. Mm. But at the same time, uh, I must say that I have been in rooms where I'll take a step back and I'll be in a corner and I'm just like, why am I here? Mm. You know, it's like, like, is, is my voice even enough to be here? One. So I have to, deal with that hurdle. And then once I sort of realized that, yes, I should be here, you know, after taking that moment of reflection, I have to sort of reset and, and re-engage, right? Because it's, this happened to me um, at AHF, AHF actually, uh, Chris. That's why you didn't, you didn't see me, you were. <laughs> Whatever, dude. <laughs> I'm still upset that you didn't tell me that you were there. But but anyway, um, now I, busy. Had moment, I had a moment where I was just like, man, should I be here? And then, I, you know, it, it, it's, it's just something I have to constantly remind myself of Like, yes, I have worked hard and I deserve to be here. Mm -hmm. Granted, I have been given great opportunity by a lot of great people, um, both uh, white and black and other um, ethnicities as well. Um, but I would say that as a black man, I, I would be remiss to, to say or believe that uh, enough of us receive an opportunity. I, I don't think that that's the case. And I think there's a lot more that can be done about that. Now, yeah. to your, your question around organizations, um, ARAP is, is an organization that I'm, um, I haven't done a, a lot with it yet, but I'm getting involved with. It's the African American uh, Real Estate Professionals Organization. Oh, really? Yeah, it's that. a national platform that um, they have different. Uh, I know they have one in Atlanta, Philadelphia, one in LA. We're opening up one in, in the Bay Area, and I intend to be a part of oh, that. Oh, cool. Yeah. ARAP, huh? Yep. A A R E P. ARP. Don't, don't go to the AARP one by accident. <laughs> I'm Not sure yet. they're going to send me a notice at some point in the near future. <laughs> I was going to say something. I'm not going to say it. Do it. <laughs> I'm I was just going to be like, lots of real estate. Lots of real estate. Lots of real estate. The AARP. <laughs> real estate guys at the AARP. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to see the current real estate professionals, go to the AARP. 
um love love them all though um so um last hot seat question um how does your your job have an impact so how do you You say how does my job have an impact yeah so kind of what this is the impact real estate podcast yeah yeah um well one thing for if your asset management arm is doing what it's supposed to do asset managers touch every piece of the organization to some extent right as far as impact like i view our department as having a significant impact to the extent that we can continue to be a part of the conversation we can continue to be a part of the decisions that are made that like the big uh not necessarily not, not only organizational decisions but, but just property level decisions where we are effectively influencing one how we build and what we build and and how we operate and, and what we operate and and to the extent that we can help um uh, sort of bring that all together and make sure that we're financially solvent both from a property level perspective but also from an organizational perspective we can then in turn directly um uh, create impact for our organization where we are uh, contributing to this long-term sustainability for affordable housing but also for the residents that need affordable housing.